Hello and welcome to BZ Listening. I'm your host, BZ Douglas. As regular listeners know, in June, I quit my job as a full-time web developer in order to start a new career in journalism. Uh, prior to this pursuit, the podcast mostly featured grassroots musicians and artists and occasionally activists and journalists because I've always needed to talk about politics. Today, I'm interviewing members of the People's Archive of Police Violence in Cleveland. I first learned of them while covering the Black Lives Matter Cleveland Defund the Police protest on the 4th of July. There, I saw volunteer Emily Forsey speak about the importance of documenting police brutality, especially as it related to the May 30th protests in downtown Cleveland. On May 30th, there is a 24-year-old man. His name's John Sanders. Walking down the street, away from the protest, minding his own business, a deputy, a sheriff's deputy, packed up outside of one of those broken windows and shot him in the face. This cop sat there for 20 minutes, thinking about what he had just done, seeing this man uh, leaving, and then he shot two more people. And he did the same thing, aiming for their face. The county has done everything they could to cover this case up. Uh, what we know is that stories coming to light and pictures and recording, uh, video, these are the things that are putting cases and bringing justice to this movement. Today I'm interviewing Emily along with two of the creators of the archive, Carol Steiner and Keith Wilson. We'll be discussing some of the work that they've done, why they're doing it, and how you can help. So when I interview musicians, I typically intersperse four or five songs throughout the episode. I'll be doing the same thing today, but using stories from the archive, specifically the People's Tribunal on Police Brutality, which uh, Carol and Keith helped organize back in 2015. In those clips, you'll hear the stories of Alicia Kirkman, Brenda Bickerstaff, Clarence Jones, and Bernadette Rowland. And in the footnotes for the episode, I will include some links to follow up on where their stories have gone since these archival recordings. Please visit archivingpoliceviolence.org or on Instagram at policeviolence underscore CLE. If uh, you have any documentation of police brutality, I would highly encourage you to reach out to contribute to the archive. And if you're interested in volunteering to help out maintain it, uh, I know that that would be much appreciated. We talk about that a little bit in the interview. Uh, I know I have certainly resolved to working with them as much as I can after reviewing the site thoroughly and conducting this interview. I have a, just a really deep appreciation for what the People's Archive is doing because, you know, I immediately saw its value as, as a researcher. Uh, I'm currently working on an audio video documentary about the Euclid PD, and it's tricky business searching for stories like the ones that uh, they've begun to collect here with this website and this project. When I first took the leap to pursue this, my biggest initial fear was how to go about finding stories. Um, and I quickly discovered that one tends to lead into the next. And the more you simply show up, the more stories you'll find. During the course of my first story, I interviewed Kareem Henton, co-founder of BLM Cleveland and previous podcast guest. 
And shortly after covering him at the 4th of July rally, it was actually Kareem that put me onto my current story, cataloging all of the awful that is the Euclid Police Department and the indifferent, ineffectual local government in Euclid. In the course of my research, I have binge watched about five seasons worth of my new favorite show to hate watch, Euclid City Council Video Archives. Great, it's great stuff. So yeah, I love me a good archive. And with that, let's get to my interview with the good people who run this archive, the People's Archive of Police Violence. Thank you so much for listening. And now let's get on with the show. Hi, my name's Carol Steiner and I was a founding member of Puncture the Silence Stop Mass Incarceration in 2014 and have been working on the archive from the beginning. Hi, I'm Keith Wilson um, and uh, I was um, part of the Puncture the Silence group that um, launched the, the archive in 2015 um, and uh, I'll pass it along to Emily. I am Emily Forsey. Um, I am a law student at Cleveland Marshall, and uh, I just joined the People's Archive of Police Violence uh, recently. What is there an inciting incident that uh, brought the ar- that made the archive happen? Was there a particular tragedy or uh, moment that prompted this? Um, the moment that prompted it was actually that um, we had done. Um, what's called, what we call the People's Tribunal on um, Police Brutality in Cleveland. And that was in, I think, April of 2015. Um, and I was putting that up on, on like a WordPress site, all the videos, um, and some archivists noticed it. Um, and they were having a convention here in Cleveland that summer. And I guess every year they have a convention, they try to do some service project and they decided their service project would be basically to help us make our um, videos more professionally um, centralized and archived and also to help us set up an ongoing process where we could continue collecting people's um, authentic stories um, of their negative interactions with the police in the Cleveland area. So um, we had th- this really good experience with interacting with these this large group of um, archivists from all over the country who kind of came here. We were here for about a week and uh, did another um, centralized, I shouldn't say centralized, sort of distributed collection of, of stories throughout the city and that's another of the ar- archives collections so the way the archive is set up is that there's various collections based on either a theme or a collection site um so there's the art one of the collections is the <clears throat> is the um there's the tribunal another one is the collections that these archivists did with, um, along, alongside of us as, as activists. And that one is called the um, Writing the Record. Um, and so there's different collections on there. So um, I thought it was pretty exciting when, the, when these archivists 
noticed us. It's pretty unusual for activist work to get noticed like that. One thing I might add is that Puncture the Silence began in April of 14 and initially did a lot of educational work with palm cards and movie showings and things like that about mass incarceration and, um, and police violence and discrimination and that kind of thing. And then was very instrumental in actually leading a lot of the demonstrations like against the uh, letting off of the cop that had killed Michael Brown on through you know, the, the rest of that year. And then in 15, we decided to do the tribunal. And actually the archivists had asked around about community groups and heard of us and our role in the past and then talked with us more about, well, they wanted to do a service project. And when they learned about the tribunal, they thought it uh, fit with a story core kind of a, of a model. And that's the kind of thing that it was modeled on. The, the part that we did with them while they were here. Yeah, and this is, um, just to say, this is based on the, the Howard Zinn kind of um, more radical model of archiving in the sense that um, archivists and historical um, historians have always kind of centered the story on um, uh, more more predominant voices. And that's that's kind of, I think, the the story of um, of our history and kind of what we're facing right now in this movement overall um, is that we have always been kind of indoctrinated with the stories of the predominant narratives of of you know from from our, our early development all the way through in public education is we've always been told the predominant stories of um, American exceptionalism and um, uh, white dominance and um, class, uh, we've not been told the, the stories of class struggle or racial struggle or gender struggle. And um, they're in some of the, the founding documents of this archive, there um, is, we, we cite um, Howard Zinn's model and call to archivists and historians to highlight these narratives from um, these voices that are not told. And that is the, the main, um, uh, I, I would say, f the, the root focus of, of this uh, project is to highlight these stories and to bring them to light, especially in what we've seen you know, recently, even here, in, and I'm sure we'll get to this, but um, uh, what we've seen recently is that um, you know, these stories just keep getting told over and over and over again. Um, that um, you know, even in the uprisings here in Cleveland, that um, that uh, you know, there's after the May 30th um, uprising, there was um, lots of stories in the news about um, the looting and the destruction of property and things like that. But the stories that weren't getting told were the stories about police violence that we all know that was happening in the community and things like that. So that's kind of. Um, how we're answering that call of, of highlighting the narratives in the community that don't get told. And that's why it's called the People's Archive, because this is the place that can collect those narratives. I feel like the main positive result is from the people who were involved. Like all of the people, we still have very close feelings and ties with the people who were involved with the tribunal. And um, 
you know, they're very active in demonstrations today. You'll see Alicia Kirkman out with, you know, billboards for her son, Angelo Miller. She's reopening that case. My name is Alicia Kirkman. My son's name was Angelo Miller. He got killed eight years ago. It's hard for me to, like, do this. You know, it's it been eight years, but it seems like the longer it is, the worse it's getting. And so he was 17 years old. Um, he was out doing things that some kids do, you know. We all have not did right growing up, you know. So he broke in a car. So him and his friends got away. So Angelo comes back home, he gets his car, thinking he could go get, you know, the radio and stole out the car. Get it. But it didn't happen like that. Um, when he was pulling up, it was an off-duty police officer. I really don't know how this went because I was not there. But what I do know is when they told me that my son tried to run the police officer over. Every mother knows their child does good in the bad. I knew my son didn't try to run the police officer over. So the 911 tape came out. And you heard the officer saying, but your, one second, please. You heard the officer saying, put your hands up, put your hands up. You heard my baby saying, my hands are up, I swear to God, I don't got nothing, I ain't doing nothing. All of a sudden, the phone went in. My son's car was shot up eight times. It don't take right scientists to figure out if my son was trying to run him over, why wasn't the front windshield shot out? Why wasn't the back windshield shot out? All the shots came from the side of the car. A bullet went in, you know, ricocheted, hit my son in the back. And, you know, had a lawyer. Lawyer came to me. It's not about no money, you know. What's gonna happen to this police officer? That's right. You know, the 911 tape is letting you know my son said my hands are up. I swear I ain't doing nothing, I don't got nothing. But it's just a mystery. You hear your son saying his hands are up, but how did the car still move? You know, it's like if, if your child said my hands are up, the car gotta be stopped, mm -hmm. you know. But as usual with the city of Cleveland, what they do when they know they are wrong, mm -hmm. they will settle. Oh, yeah. They will settle. Oh, yeah. Me, I don't want your money. You know, I, I want this police officer to be charged. That's right. What's his name? Um. John Lundy. So, I wanted to take the trial. Couldn't take the trial. Because I didn't have $20,000 to take the trial. So I ended up settling for the simple fact my child had two boys. So when his boys get older, if they want to go to college, 
they will be able to go to college because they have something, that his kids was only one, they have something from their father, you know, but it get worse and it get worse. Like every time you're watching the news, you know, ever since my son got killed, it seems like it's getting worse, and it's getting worse. You know, and it's like you you're, you can't heal because the pain, when you see that, when you, like when I saw the young man running for his life, and he got shot eight times. How can a parent ever heal? I mean, somebody had asked me something before, and I told them, it's like I put on a disguise because I have to go to the workforce, I have to deal with the public, I have kids and grandkids. So I, I have to put on the disguise because when your child is taken away from you, your life will never, ever be the same. That's right. Some things you can't listen to no more, some things you can't watch no more, some things you can't cook no more, some things you can't eat no more. That's how sickening it is. It's a pain that we deal with. We can't explain. You know, you have to be that parent that lose that child. That's it. I think that the, the movement overall um, has been renewed um, in recent months, as we all know. And so um, there is a and I am new, so almost all of this hard work in this project has been done by Keith and Carol and everyone else. So I, I cannot take any of, of that credit at all. Um, what the foundation is that, that they have laid and that others have laid, or at least from my perception, is that it was more of a academic, historical, record-keeping project to get these narratives out of the community into a place for um, for the the for the sake of, of having um, these these uh, a record of these stories to not get lost um, in the communities in 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 the households and in um, and, and lost to history. Um, I feel like the the renewed movement, at least from my point of view, is is has kind of shifted um, the scope slightly in in that we are now um, not only trying to preserve stories, but also trying to look for ways to um, allow the community to have a place to connect with each other. And I'll offer an example. Um, there uh, is a, was a man uh, on May 30th, uh, John Sanders, who was shot by a, um, and unfortunately by a sheriff's deputy, and he lost his eye. Uh, he was shot by a, a, um, a not a rubber, a rubber bullet, but a um, beanbag, and he lost his eye. And then um, my partner and I were shot, um, were almost positive by the same deputy, um, about 20 minutes later um, and then through this write the record and social media and, and speaking at rallies and, and things and talking about this project um, 
we've now had um, five other connections come forward that will help bolster that case because they were there the same day. They were um, different parts of that that puzzle. Um, they were two people that helped carry John Sanders away from the scene of the incident and two people that were um, there when he got into the ambulance. And we've actually now found a third victim that was shot presumably by that same officer. So this is all through that project and that's what happens and that's the power in, in the, the solidarity of these stories in putting them together and seeing what can happen and that can bolster each other's cases. So um, on the, on the um, website, we say that the purpose of this project is for healing and justice um, and, and, and that's really what this can do. Um, and this is kind of the justice angle, I think, uh, for me. And um, and I think there's real power in that. And we're seeing that kind of, and this is a good example of that. I'd like to slightly disagree with that. Okay. That we never, we here, the community activists, never wanted it to just be an active academic storage spot. Okay. We very much wanted it to be continue to be an interactive spot where people would come forward. We developed this handout, which very much stresses, please come tell your story. You know, so from the beginning, that was a very large portion of what we wanted to do. But in truth, I mean, to, and to agree to a certain extent, it went dormant until recently. Um, I, I think that, you know, I, I think that when we teamed with the archivists, our, our purpose became dual. So I think that we still, as activists, had that mentality that, like, we wanted change now. But um, one of the, like, found the visionary uh, archivists who reached out to us, his name is Jarrett Drake, and he's the one who kind of put the Howards in mentality into the DNA of the archive. Um, you know, he sent us a, a, the, the seminal paper by Zinn, and we, I think we all read it. And um, he's written another um, paper a few years along, ago. About, along, uh, with, along with Stacy Williams. It wasn't just him. Um, Stacy Williams, you, that's true. For some reason... Um, it's two of them. Uh, I've, I've interacted with, with Jarrett more, but you're right. I shouldn't um, forget. The paper, but the paper is both of them. Oh, I see what you mean. Okay. Yeah. Um, and that really instilled the idea that this can also have reverberating effects through history, because this paper talks about his inspiration from seeing the, the archivists who documented apartheid South Africa and the um, internment of the Japanese in World War II and the civil rights movement and the people who archived the, um, the SNCC and the um, Southern um, Christian Leadership Conference. So um, that tells me that, okay, so we're disappointed that, you know, we're not seeing justice for the people who have shared their stories in Cleveland, but they are there. As Carol pointed out, they're getting some sense of healing, but also as these archives 
are maintained through history, historians will pick it up and the stories can be told. And, um, and also, you know, in, in this era of like multiple, um, like, I don't like the term echo chambers, but people have sort of different realities that they have based on what their news sources are. Um, I think it's, it's useful to have some documentation of what people are actually saying on the ground. So um, if, if you have, you know, a relative who's a Fox News um, devotee and you might be able to say, well, here, why don't you take a look at this, at this um, tribunal, at these videos, spend 15 minutes and look at this and tell me what you think. Um, so that sort of thing um, can happen. I'm not quite sure if it's happening that much, but um, that's the sort of thing that I think is, th th there's different reasons why this is a valuable project. Well, I would well, say that there's, I mean, you're, you I, I, in, in the position that anyone volunteering with this project takes, I think you have to think of it as you're doing some really vital work, but someone else is going to have to pick up where you leave off you know if you're maintaining this archive um you know i'm and you're dealing with a community that in in a, a realm of society that is absolutely deliberately overlooked and i i was um I, I see this as kind of um you know the movement overall is in its infancy um, in a way, and we always are, right? Because this is linear and it's gone on before us. It'll go on long after we're dead. Um, but I was talking to somebody the other day um, about um, she is working with, with another group um, here in Cleveland, and she's working on creating a, a database um, to just track the because this is information we don't have um track um the the um records of police misconduct in the various um departments that we have um because we have rta and we have a police force at, at the cleveland clinic and at the library and you know all these different layers of police that we there's no within the state, within the counties, within the cities, within all these municipalities, we don't have any kind of tracking system that says, these are, are the, um, these are the, uh, this is what's in their, their jackets when there's a, a misconduct. Um, and this is when they move from, like what happened with Tamir Rice. Um, when there is an instance of, of misconduct, they can move um, the wandering officer, right? That, 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 that issue. They can move from department to department. We don't know. So she was just trying to get to the place where we're just, just finding out what these things are. And that, I mean, that's before we, we as, as organizers, even and activists, even try to change the law about it. And, and that's what I mean when I say we're in our infancy is we're just trying to figure out what we're working with here. And I think a project like like our project, the archive is kind of part of that. It's just seeing what are we working with and then what can we do with it? Um, so I think sometimes it can be frustrating because we're just getting all of this honestly depressing, awful information um, and just like, what do we do with it? Um, but 
Um, I think that will come later. And kind of what Keith said earlier, there will be, um, or at least what I was thinking you were saying, there's, there will be other people that, that use this work to build off of it. Yeah. And that's what I was saying. I hope to be one of those people who, you know, when I find like going, when I was just going through it for researching to do priming for this, you know, this interview, I was actually like, wow, I'll, I'll never be able to take in all of this. Um, even if you just have people there that like know it well enough that you're available. If a journalist comes and says like, Hey, I'm looking for stories about this. And you're like a librarian, like, Oh, well I have all this file of awful things that happened. And just having it classified by like, these are Euclid stories. These are South Euclid stories. These are, you know, I think, um, you guys are definitely on the right track. And as more, you know, you know, whatever, any, anyone in a journalistic capacity or even just an individual citizen looking for justice, I think it's going to find a lot of value in this. Um, is there, are there any stories that have really stuck with you that you're like, everybody should know this, that, um, I know there was one or two, um, as I was, I was watching the, the people's tribunal, especially, um, was the last, uh, one, the woman who was a, a private detective. Brenda Bickerstaff. Yeah. Yeah. Her testimony uh, at the very end, I was like, wow, that's a, she's a closer. Okay. Good afternoon, panel. Uh, my name is Brittany Bickerstaff. Um, I'm a private investigator, I have an investigation business. But before then, uh, I have two stories, I'm gonna make it brief. My brother Craig Lamont Bickerstaff was murdered by police back in 2002, it's been 13 years. So when I saw the incident that happened in North Carolina, when the boy was running, pow, 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 and shot him eight times in the back, it brought back memories because my younger brother was shot five times in the back. And what was amazing when I saw North Carolina, he took his taser and brought it over and dropped it down by the guy's body. But he didn't know that the gentleman, somebody was video recording. Right. And I was just so happy about that. Right, right. And, um, and I'm gonna say this, my dad was a cop, my sister's a commander in Pittsburgh, and I, know, I have another relative on the force here in Cleveland. And I'm gonna tell you this, my father was on the force for 33 years and he never murdered nobody. I'm just keeping it real. He never murdered nobody. And this is not the uh, legacy that my father, even though he's deceased, would like to have left for the community and the citizens in Cleveland and anywhere across the country. Because my father was a type of officer. If you had a problem, you could come up and talk to him. He did not have an arrogant attitude like these officers today. And I just want to say that. And I'm not just saying it because it's my dad. There are some good ones out there. But the ones that are horrible, they need to go. Now my second story, is I was out working on a case to try to get a young man out of jail. Well, this particular detective, Vincent Lucarelli, was sleeping with the victim. So what he did, he put a false indictment on me back in 2012. We pulled his text messages and found out he was sleeping with the victim, not only in this case, but he had been sleeping with victims since 2009. We had 30,000 text messages. I filed a complaint, he was fired, but two days ago, they reinstated his job. Mm -hmm. Two days ago, a judge, John D. Satula, 
What happened was he went through the arbitration. Arbitration gave him his job back. Then the city appealed it to this judge. And the judge reinstated him two days ago. So I'm just letting you know, Vincent Lucarelli. And I'm going to tell you something that was so odd about this. When we were going through the court system, and we're still going through it now, my lawyer questioned him on a deposition. And what he said was his boss, who was a black commander now, Dennis Hill out of the 5th District, knew that he was texting and sleeping with these victims. So if Dennis Hill would have took care of his business back in 2012 with another lawyer called and complained about another client, I wouldn't have got invited. See, everybody don't know the system like me. Everybody didn't know how to get out of the system like me and get an indictment out from under you and pull records and get text messages. They don't, people don't know how to do that. My clients have seen it on TV, said, bigger staff, we wouldn't have known how to do that. We wouldn't have known how to do that. We don't have money to do that. And we run across this every single day. And anybody that's familiar with the court system know if you're poor and black, you don't have nothing going. And it's sad to say, I hate to say it, but it's true. And I want you to understand too, just like this young lady said, being black is not always right. Because you have a black man who's a commander in a white shirt who's letting a detective run loose and do what he wants to do in the black community. Okay. But wait a minute. Dennis Hill told the public he lives on Nathaniel Avenue. He got a big house out there in Bidensville in Twinsburg. He does not live in Cleveland. So when you run into Dennis Hill, ask him this question. Do you pay attention to what your officers do in your district? And my next question is, why in the hell is he still the commander? I could be in the penitentiary right now for five years for nothing. Five years for nothing. He put an intimidation case on me. For what? I'm out there doing my job. So it's just not regular citizens, it's people like me too. It happened to me. So I can speak on this. So all of the marching and everything is beautiful. But just like this gentleman here, Uncle Bob, we have to take this to a next level. Man. My brother Craig, I went to visit his grave yesterday. Mm-hmm. And I said, brother, I'm your big sister still fighting, baby. He has two daughters, Kanisha and Arabia, who sometimes cry out because they miss their father. They was four and five when he was murdered. They're grown now, graduated from high school, they're in college. They still hurt and they still hurt and pain from the loss of their dad. Now to the police, he might have been a thug, but to them, that's my dad. And to me, that's my brother. Thug is not on his birth certificate. It says Craig Lamont Vickerstad. Question to you, Brenda, I'd like to ask you a question. What, what do you think, what's your uh, idea of what the next level is, you and Uncle Bob? Yeah. Well, I would like to talk to Uncle Bob, and it was so glad to meet you. I met you, I read your article, and I would like to talk to you when this is over, too. And don't get me wrong, through the years, I met some amazing people. I met this young lady who spoke about her son and the young lady up, Bernadette, is that your name? Bernadette, about um, Dan Bigler. I 
would like all of us to stay in touch. Yeah. And we fell out of touch. Yeah. We were all staying in touch. Bill know this. We were all staying in touch. Now we have fell out of touch. I want us to all stay back in touch. Now, just like she just said um, not too long ago, we need some of you down here in them courtrooms to see what's really going on. Amen. Because I'm going to tell you how I got indicted. He wrote the complaint. He passed it to Alicia, uh, Felicia McDuffie. He put a sticker on me and said, well, don't um, indict this if you don't, want, if you don't need to. I'm not worried about it. Then it's sitting over the hill. He'll sign off on it without even finding out any information. Next thing I know, I'm indicted. And then when he said that he'll do all about what he does, he won't tell me you're a lieutenant or a commander, you don't know what's going on in your district. But I'm putting this out here because I want you to know Dennis Hill, do not forget that name. What is his position? He is a commander of the 5th District on East 152nd Street. He's a black man with a white shirt. He's a black man in power and he dogs his own people. Yes, he does. I've seen him before. Uh, Reverend Lewis was saying, you may not think the politicians is held accountable. Yes, they are. Remember, I'm somebody's mother and somebody's sister. And all of these people in here are too. And if they do me like that, they'll do you like that. Oh, that's right. Just don't get away from that. And just remember that. Dennis Hill. Thank you. Okay. Carol and I have been working recently, or for the past year and a half, really, on um, the coalition to stop the inhumanity at the county jail. And um, Brenda shows up to the um, to some of the actions that we have, and she's always, um, she's just got this powerful way of speaking. Uh, and she gets, she, and also she's very um, willing to confront the people in power in ways, yeah. like she, she does not, um, uh, she, she, Stand on ceremony. <laughs> I mean, I'll tell you, I'm very happy to hear. I didn't. Well, I didn't have much time to go. Like, oh, where is Brenda now? Because I, I came across her video very late last night. But I just like, I was like, I'm just very glad you're like, oh, she's still around. She's still kicking. Because yes, yeah, she seemed to just like. There's a fearlessness there that I'm just like, wow, that's good. Good for you. And people need to see that because there's a lot of people who are rightfully terrified to speak up against the police. Yeah, part part of it, I think, is her. Part of it is her unique position. She is a private investigator, so she's actually very aware of the role that all these people play all the time. So she'll call them out in a minute. Yeah, I would actually love to talk to her or even uh, just probably get some tips on like, you know, getting into the more of the weeds of investigating. So I work with a lot of like public records, but I haven't got to that point yet where I need to really sift out some things that are are deeply uh, buried. Um, one so, of, one of the, to answer your question about a story on the archive, there's an there's another one um, from the tribunal. And and we keep talking about the tribunal, but I think that really is sort of the most um, powerful part of the archive. Um, there's um, Brandon Jones's father spoke at the at the tribunal, and his son had been killed just, uh, I don't know, two Three weeks, weeks earlier? Three weeks One, earlier. Um, 
and that one really stuck with me. Um, and and as a matter of fact, he we had a um, street protest in March, like uh, the next month. Is that right? And, yeah. and, and, and the father showed up there. I think his name is Clarence. Um, and the the knowledge that it had been that that his son, who I think was about twenty, had just been murdered, um, really makes it difficult to watch, but also just really powerful to see um, that how strong this guy was and how much he had already processed in three weeks and um, was able to articulate about where what what he felt needed to be done in the community and um, just how devastated he was. Hi, everybody doing? Uh, I'm Clarence Jones. Uh, Brandon Jones was my son. Well, Brandon Jones, he was shot on Parkwood. Mm-hmm. Coming out of the store, he broke into the store, coming out of the store with two bags in his hand. Same day, they called 911 and told him that my son was breaking the store, witnessed the whole thing. She said she watched the whole thing from the time she called to the time they shot my son. So they came out of the store. They grabbed a hold of him. Both of them grabbed a hold of him. She said he's talking four to five minutes with a gun in his throat. Mm-hmm. Talking to him. So my son would say something back to him. And the gun went off. And they dropped my son to the front. One of them chased the pulse. Told the other one there's no pulse. He called back up, then he called back home. Said they came. Got my son, didn't do CPR on him on the ground, didn't do no CPR or nothing on him. He gave him food and ambulance too. Mm-hmm. She said, that's all he did. You know what I'm saying? And I told the lady, what you did, you called the police. Don't feel bad about that. Mm-hmm. Don't feel bad about that. You was right. You did what you supposed to do. The citizen of Cleveland. You did what you supposed to do. She said, I ain't had no idea they were going to kill your son. She said, if I knew they were going to kill your son, I would have laid him away. She said, I feel bad because I feel like his death is on me. And I told you, no, his death is not on me. It's on the man that shot my son. That's what his death is on. The man who shot my son. When my son was shot at 2.30 in the morning, I didn't find out at 5. And when they came, this way he told me, your son has been shot by Cleveland police. I don't know no more. I wasn't there. I don't know nothing else. He just did. They walked off. And we called around. They said the, people, the guy that's supposed to investigate him, investigating it. He was on vacation for two days. So we had to wait for two days for him to come back. And when he finally came back and somebody else came to talk to us, he came to my door and said the same thing. The son got to the police. This is a little scuffle. He did. We don't know no more. All we got to wait for uh, everything to come back and then we get to And all this in a year. Uh-huh. In a year, you can do a lot in a year. You know your kid, I know mine. You talk to us, but I talk my eyes well. They don't listen all the time. They don't. You know They do some bad for things. Why they do it? We don't know that. All we know is what we talk about. You see what I'm saying? And they didn't get a chance to use it. He was a good kid. You know what I'm saying? 
And I understand what you're saying. There's a lot of things I can't do no more. I'm trying to fool. Fuck week for my son. Got killed. We went out. We did some shopping. And got this graphic um, pocket by Popeye. Still sitting in my prison. Mm-hmm. Every time I look at it, I try. Mm-hmm. I don't want nobody to touch it. What? You know, that's what I got. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. And my son, he been there before. He got a little juvenile record. He know not to fight with the police. I tell you. You know? Week before he got shot, I mean, yeah, week before he got shot, they tried to tow my car. It was parked on the street. Good place on it. Tires full. Place good. You know, my son and my other son just bought a car, so we basically driving his car around. You know, they come to my car, I'm out doing something. And my son, they called me, the police out here, finna tow the car. I asked them to go out there, ask him, can they hold up a minute, I'm finna come and move the car, I'm on my way. He said, he go out there and talk to him, first thing the police say, get away from the car, or we're gonna take you to jail. Get back up on the sidewalk, get away from the car, we're taking the car, now y'all gonna do it. You know what I'm saying? So I tell my son, don't worry about it. You know, I make it there before he took my car. You know what I'm saying? I'm trying to show my son different things. I'm out there, okay, please, officer, don't take my car. Give me two minutes. Let me move my car. Push it in my driveway. No, nah, we ain't doing that. They should have been over here talking all crazy. What they got to do with me? I'm here, I'm bagging. You know what I'm saying? I'm pleading in front of my son, trying to show him another way. So they talk to these police officers, make it good. You know what I'm saying? They ain't want to hear shit I have to say, excuse me. No, they ain't want to hear nothing I have to say. Don't worry about it. We're taking your car because they've talked smart to it because they've seen this. You know what I'm saying? I'm on the phone. I hear my nephew talk to the officer like, he's on the phone. He said, can you do a minute? I ain't giving you nothing. I hear the officer. My nephew, he's not arguing with the man. He's not talking crazy with the man. You know what I'm saying? So I find he pulled up, I go talk to the officer, he rolled the window up. I see another car, I go talk to another car, I'm like, man, what's up my car? Can I get my car? Well, I'm on the one that put the ticket on it. I mean, there's no ticket on my car. Where's the ticket? Well, we came over here the other day and we marked on the car. Where's the marking at? You told me the mark, you showed me the marking on the tire. The man marking on my tire was, you couldn't just put that on my tire because it's worn. You barely can see what it say. You can't even see what it really saying. You know what I'm saying? What did you write on there? You put number, you put date. What did you put on it? You can't even see it. You know what I'm saying? I'm saying you plead. I'm pleading. My son, they ain't got to bag them. They gonna take the car anyway. They gonna do what they want to do. Boy, shut up. Let me handle this. Let me do what I do. You know what I'm saying? That's why I told him. All right, daddy. I'm staying out there pleading, but please, please, please don't take my car. You know what I'm I'm talking to the lieutenant. The way he got sorry about him, white shirt. I'm talking to him. It's out of my hand. I'm like, man, just let me move the car. You know what I'm saying? He's like, I tell you what. If you can get a tow truck here and get the car and move, you can have the car. I said, hold on, wait. Your tow truck on the way. Your tow truck was on the way before I got here. So what is he trying to do to me? What is he feeding me? This is some bull crap feeding me. If I can get a tow truck here, it's going to take me 30, 45 minutes to get my tow truck here. Yours on the way. Yours going to be pulling up soon, soon before I can get on the phone. And true enough, before I got on the phone, I got to call my tow truck. He comes his tow truck down the street. I said, what type of this? You know what I'm saying? You know, the cop saying that, well, your son, they shouldn't be not here talking all to the officer. I'm like, was you here when you're talking to him? I'm like, no, I wasn't here. He's like, I believe my officer. So it's my prayer book now. That's why this is my prayer book. I said, that's why people don't like y'all. Y'all have no compassion. Y'all have no understanding. 
You know what I'm saying? That's why they like us. Well, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, I said, y'all did y'all job. My car, y'all tore my car. Y'all leave my place. I'm gone. You know what I'm saying? They looking at me smiling and laughing. And I turned back. I said, it ain't no joke. It's serious. We said, y'all have to tow my car. You know what I'm saying? And when I'm saying, that's why we don't like them now. I said, I feel you, man. But you ain't got to be like that towards them all the time. You know what I'm saying? I should feel that there was good officers out here. But now today, hell no. I don't believe it. I can never look at another cop and say, he might be good. That's right. You know what I'm saying? I can never say that. You know what I'm saying? It's just like they look at all these little black kids running around these poor neighborhoods. They all bad. That's right. All cops are bad. That's, that's right. That's right. Yes. All these kids out here bad doing their story. Right. You saying there ain't no good ones out here? They all these cops out here killing these people, beating these people. Doing all this. There, there's no good cops. There's no good cops. And I truly believe there's no good cops because one cop is a cop doing bad. He's not going to step up and say, hey, he's doing bad. No, don't do that. He's he going to say, he's going to watch it. He's going to watch it. You know what I'm saying? But as I said, I feel what she said. My life ain't going to never be the same. No. I'm hurt eight times. Eight times I look at my wife, I see her crying for my son. I hurt because she hurt. I look at my kids, I see her crying because they want me run. That's nothing. That's another pain on me. You know what I'm saying? I'm already hurting for my son. And now that I hurt because my kids hurt because they're my late brother. And he was a good brother to me. He made sure they didn't get no trouble. He made sure they did what they supposed to do. So he had good to do. You know? He wasn't bad. And I'm not letting nobody sit there and say, well, he shouldn't have did what he did. You're right, he shouldn't have did what he did. It's a lot of things we shouldn't do that we do. I'm a grown man. I'm 42, 43 years old. I still make bad decisions. You know what I'm saying? I still make bad decisions. But we learn. You know what I'm saying? My son can't learn no more. He learned all he's going to learn. But, you know, the root of all this is obviously desperation. You know, my kids aren't going to, as a white person who has enough money to feed my kids, my kids aren't going to find themselves in a situation. Where yeah, but I, I had plenty of money as a kid. I didn't, you know, my parents would pay for me to get candy bars and I would, I would go into stores and swipe stuff. Me too. I was, yeah, I, I just, it was fun to get away with it or whatever. Dumb nonsense. That's okay. the thing. <laughs> yeah. I'm not gonna, there's, I, I'm I'm kind of gotten to the point where like looking at all this, it's like I, I there's always that narrative like like uh, Emily was kind of saying about like where, where the official narrative always goes. And there's always when there's a, a tragic killing that does bubble up to the news, whenever there's something to be like, well, it was kind of on him for doing this. Or that. And I'm just done with that. I'm like, look, ultimately, we're talking about this person might have been selling weed or yeah they shoplifted from a candy store used a 20 dollar they didn't deserve to die and they didn't have to like it's right. become very black and white for me and i'm done with any nuance of like well there's this unless we're talking about like they were actively about to harm someone and there was real violence and a threat but when it's just this oh they're they weren't a perfect person i'm like neither am i you just don't know all the terror <laughs> like little bad things i've done over the years that if you yeah. just put those on paper like oh brian was kind of shady sometimes this um <laughs> The 137 shots case, I don't think was part of the tribunal, 
but it certainly was a case here in Cleveland that was exactly what you're talking about. They accused, accused Melissa being a prostitute. Both of them were from the shelters, you know, and they chased, you know, how many departments of police chased them all across the area. And then the guy, uh, Relo, stood up on the, on the hood and pumped 49 shots into the windshield. That is perfectly what you're talking about. And, you know, and, and what happened? Nothing. You know, just about total impunity. Yeah, and every everyone will say that like, oh, what they 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 brought the reaction on themselves because they ran and created this big chase. But I'm also and the, the same thing kind of I think it's put it like uh, a, as a dismissal of what Luke Stewart's killing. Um, and I don't know for anyone who wasn't listening, Luke Stewart was a man sleeping in his car in Euclid. Someone called the police because they're like, hey, there's a car on my block that I don't know and it's just sitting there. The cops show up, they see he's sleeping in there. And according to them, they saw a paraphernalia in the car and they decided, well, we've got to like wake him up violently and get him out of the car. And then Luke reacted immediately like, hey, there was no flashing lights and there were silhouettes of men in the night. So he awakens to that. They never said police. But even if he did know they were police, knowing the history of the Euclid police, part of me is just like, he probably feared for his life, like right, rightfully so, because of the way they would treat anyone. If because he, he did have a background, like you know, he had run from the cops before and this or that. And I, anymore, I'm just like, well, I am I going to blame someone for having a righteous fear of being killed by the cops? Well, and also too, I, I think two things have been brought up that are really important, and one is with the Brelo case, and there was just another case too that unfortunately her name is escaping me at this moment but there was just another young girl that was on her way to the library in East Cleveland um, that was killed by a police chase um, where police were chasing um, for for like a, a, a misdemeanor or something police were chasing through the streets of East Cleveland at 70 miles an hour going after after someone and lost control of their cars and um, hit a young girl on her way to the library and killed her. And I mean, that's similar to the Brelo case in the sense that um, we need to also be looking at, um, I mean, and this goes into deeper questions of police policy, policing policy, you know, the question of defunding the police and digging deeper into that. But um, really the question of holding police accountable for just this this renegade um, acting with complete impunity um, and it without without any consequences really and I think uh, uh, Carol that was such a milestone that case because we really saw in Cleveland that there was just I mean you could like a cowboy stand on the hood of a car here in this city. Um, and not, I mean, beyond just murdering a 12-year-old at Point Blake Range near Rice, you could really, like a cowboy, just do whatever you wanted to in the city and and absolutely nothing would happen to you. Um, And I'm surprised that um, nothing is, is, that we really haven't seen anything. It might be too early, but we haven't seen anything with this this case in East Cleveland yet. So how do you, uh, what kind of help 
can you guys use um, or is I mean, is this it seems like the sort of thing where someone could contribute a bit of time a, a week and not necessarily have to like, well, this is what I do all the time. I'm sure you could throw yourself in that deeply. But um, thinking about a project like this, because I'm, I'm a web developer, too. So I'm immediately looking at it like, hey, I, I'd love to help. There's some ideas on how the website could be, work a little better. Um, so uh, I just wanted to open open that up for what kind of um, volunteering opportunities or, or other opportunities people could have. They want to help out what you're doing here. Um, hey, we'll call you later about that. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that actually is one of the, now that Emily's sort of got lit a fire under us again, um, we've had been having discussions about what what should we do? Um, so one of the things actually is, oh, hey, this, um, I, you know, like we were taking a look at the website and I was thinking, oh, hey, this submission form page is not quite as inviting as I wanted it to be. And some of these fields are a little ambiguous. So um, we were gonna, you know, maybe we need, maybe we need a web developer to, to help us fix that. Um, and another angle is that um, our most successful collections are from times when we made a concerted effort um, to go out and collect stories. Um, we've, I've already told you about two instances um, with the tribunal and with the um, archivists, but we also have done things like go to the juvenile uh, detention center and, and record their stories anonymously. Um, what one idea that we have is make a toolkit and have people set up a table at a protest and just advertise that they're willing to listen to their stories and, and teach people how to use audio equipment and stuff. Um, so we would that would be soon enough. We'll have um, some toolkit for for people who would want to volunteer to do that sort of thing. And there's some other ideas. We have. Well, along with that, that idea for the toolkit would be taking it to the activist organizations in town that, you know, some of them have very large bases. And if we could take the cool toolkit to their meetings and, you know, give a demonstration, maybe play some of the archive, you know, the tribunal or whatever, um, then it would get out, it would get out, you know, among the people farther as to what it actually is. I think part of our problem is an understand, who's heard of an archive? You know, it's not exactly an everyday word, if, especially if you haven't been in academia. And so I don't think people understand right off the bat what a tool this can be, but the people that have been involved definitely understand it. And I just wanted to bring up one more case that really tugged at my heartstrings. And that was Alicia Kirkman. As I reviewed things, her testimony was very brief, but it was like, when you lose your child, you cannot, you're never the same again. You can't cook the same things. You can't eat the same things. It's like very vivid daily reminder that you've lost this loved one. And that always just struck me, probably as a mom, but just in general. What has surprised me too since really being in Cleveland and moving here and, and hearing all of these families of victims is how quickly after 
their child has been victimized, they've been able to, and murdered, that they've been able to speak about it in this way that's like, you can tell that they already had prepared in their minds what would happen if this ever happened to them. Hmm. And that is striking to me because I don't think anyone in my family had ever thought if Emily is killed by the police, this is how I, I will feel because I don't think that's something that anyone in my family had ever had to think about. And that ha has struck me several times because these parents are devastated, of course, but they already know they are prepared. And that is, it's startling to see how prepared they are for this grief that they are going to have to have. Um, and I, and I, I thought that the other day, um, Carol and I um, were interviewed um, with Alicia Kirkman, and I thought that about what she said, um, even though it's been so long after her son was, was murdered, but um, it, it is striking to me. It reminds me of ta Coates' book of the letter to his son. Mm -hmm. Have you read that? Mm -hmm. Between yeah. the World and Me, I think it's called. Yeah, Between the World and Me. Mm -hmm. And it's, uh, it's sort of modeled after um, a letter or book that James Baldwin mm -hmm. wrote to his the nephew. Fire next time, so so this, yeah. yeah. So the minute a black person leaves their home, their black skin is visible and all that that means. Yeah, and that's 100% the thing that, um, you know, I've internalized. I mean, I think being when you're closer to activism um and certainly now becoming a journalist who's like writing about police you start feeling uh, a little more terror about like law enforcement like or and that paranoia that just comes with like oh you know if you're challenging authority in that way now you know that puts you know you can be more of a target to law enforcement for any number of reasons um but just the fact that like that terror is something like I could put it down. I can stop doing this. I can walk away. Or when I go walk, if no one knows me in a town, then no one knows that I'm, I'm an activist or a journalist and you can't put it down when you, when you know, that with the color of your skin, um, the, I think the other thing like you were saying too, about, um, the reaction of, of families and grief. I mean, when I think about if something like this were to happen to one of my kids, the the only thing that would quell it would be speaking out and, and expressing my rage and, and having something good come of it. I, I there's another story in the in the tribunal I, I saw last I forget uh, his name, but his mother came to speak. He was uh, shot uh, like falsely accused of stealing some jewelry and um, Dan then, then, yeah, what was his name? Dan Ficker. Dan Ficker, yeah. And his mother was there, and she she talked about how, like, her and the ex-husband were, like, working on that together for justice or whatever. And, and just that – I it, it was the same thing that I'm talking about now. Is you could just see that resolve, and, like, the only thing that's going to make this right, or at least, you know, that, that's worth, you know, anything is to, like, make sure it doesn't happen to anyone else or, and, and demanding justice for it. 
Good afternoon. Just want to thank Carol for inviting us here today to give you our testimony about our son Daniel Picker, who's pictured on the shirt, um, who was killed uh, at the age of 27 on July 4th, 2011, by the Cleveland Police Department. The story starts by, um, well, let me give you a little background. My son uh, was with his high school sweetheart for 10 years. Her name is Tiffany Urbach. They have two children together, and they reside in, they re she still does live in Parma with the two children. On 4th of July, they were going to a family party. Tiffany is married, Tiffany's cousin is married to a Cleveland police officer. They go to the party on July 3rd in the afternoon with their children. They leave about five o'clock. For some reason, Tiffany's cousin does not like my son. She hasn't liked him, but they go because they're family, so they go to this party. They leave the party. They go to Tiffany's parents' house in Strongsville, finish out the rest of the July 3rd afternoon, leave the children there, and then they, then they go home. They stop at a bar, have a drink or two, then they go home. When they get home, there are two police officers from Cleveland parked in front of their house in Parma, waiting for them to get home. While they were at their parents' house, apparently some jewelry came up missing, which today we know is a lie because there was no jewelry and there was no jewelry missing. So Tiffany's cousin, Kim Mindek, makes a phone call to her husband, Dave Mindek, who was an officer at the 4th District, and says, someone stole the jewelry from our house, and I think it was Dan, right off the bat. Didn't see him do anything, nobody saw anything, and today I can tell you there's no fingerprints, no DNA, nothing anywhere where that jewelry was supposed to be. So, what does Dave Mindek do? He leaves work, gets off work from the police department, calls his buddy, from the second district on a cell phone, doesn't make a police report like a normal citizen like you or I would do. He calls his buddy on his cell phone. He meets him at his house. When they get there, they, they disrupt the crime scene, so-called crime scene, which is not proper protocol. I mean, I could tell you 1,000 things that those two officers did wrong. We'd be here all day, but anyway, they, so Dave Minnick gets in the car with Officer Matthew Kraft, but Matthew Kraft is on the clock. Dave Minnick is off the clock now. They get in their patrol car. Kraft calls his supervisor, Daly, who Officer Daly was one of the officers that let one of those 63 cars go to the 137 bullets shooting. Yes, one of the same officers. So anyway, they get, they, he doesn't tell him Mindex in the car with them. He just says he's going to check something out in Parma. That's about all the information he gave daily. So they, so like I said, they, they take matters into their own hands. They go there and they wait for my son and Tiffany to arrive home at their, at their home. No, no warrant, no arrest, nothing. They just want to question them. So they say, so my, like I said, my son had a couple drinks. 
and he was not driving, okay? Tiffany was driving the car, so of course, you know, like you guys have said prior to me that you wanna, they wanna try to twist everything around and, you know, saying that my son's driving while he was drinking. He wasn't even driving, she was driving. They pull in, the two officers come up to them and say, we wanna talk to you. No lights on, no, no warrant, nothing. And Tiffany and my son, they lock arms and they, they say, no, we, we have nothing to say to you. First they say, what are you doing here? Um, anyway, they tried to get in their house and Officer Crespo pulls my son, unlocks his arm from Tiffany's arm, pulls him, throws him up against the police car, and pretty much starts beating him. My son is screaming for help. He's screaming to the neighbors, somebody help me, Dawn, somebody, somebody please help me. Tiffany's calling the Parma police because what is she gonna do? She, she can't do anything. These are two police officers supposed to help, but they're not helping. Anyway, a fight ensues. Um, because my son can't, he's not going to get beat for something he didn't do, and he knows the officers are not acting within their jurisdiction, they're not acting as police officers, so he's protecting his, himself and his life. They get in an altercation, they're rolling on the ground, Tiffany's trying to call the police, and within minutes, I, I would say, Officer Crasco was tired of fighting with my son. My son was unarmed by me, had nothing on him, but a pocket knife, which they took out, threw it on the ground, just a pocket knife he carried every day, and basically, um, he pulled out the, the gun, and he fired at my son, he killed him right at his doorstep. And he's trying to get into his house, all because he was tired of fighting with my son. And Officer Mindex stood there and watched the whole thing happen, and nothing, he did nothing. Anyway, of course, the grand jury doesn't indict him because it's a justifiable shooting, of course, even though my son is unarmed and doesn't have to talk to them. He doesn't have to go with them. They have no search warrant. He didn't have to do anything. His civil rights were totally and completely violated. So we have a civil suit now trying to do something to get justice somewhere, seeing that the Cuyahoga County prosecutor won't do anything. The Cleveland Police Department didn't even discipline them because they said they're waiting for the discipline until after our civil suit. How could you wait to discipline somebody until a civil suit? It's almost four years. Well, guess what? The two officers, I believe, have now since got disability retirement. They're not even working as police officers, so they're ne they will never be disciplined. So we're just looking for justice. Just real quick, my husband, my ex-husband Dennis, which is my son's father, he suffered a stroke a couple months ago. He's been in this with me from the beginning. We've been doing this together, and he's been speaking. But we had a little setback, but he's here right now. Is there anything uh, you'd like to uh, put out there? Any any plugs for anything you're specifically trying to uh, call out right now, or get attention to, or s casting a net for certain types of stories? Yeah, the I've been uh, heading up the Instagram account, and people do write me all the time, uh, or us on the Instagram account, and say hey, I saw this thing, do you guys want to know about this thing? And I always say, yes, add it to the archive. Um, and it, ne it almost never happens. I do have a couple um, people that have said, can I send you an email? So I do, um, you know, I have a couple narratives that way that I just need to stick in there. Um, but I think, you know, us working on the, on the, um, making it easier for people to upload things will help. But um, at least for me, the plug is 
asking people to, um, when they see things, when they have pictures, when they have videos to safely, you know, block out, block out anyone's faces that they, they want to, but to reach out to us via the archive and upload those, um, those narratives um, and the photos and the videos that they have would be the best thing that they can do. Um, if they, they're welcome to reach out via the Instagram um, or, or the Facebook. Facebook. Yeah. Um, but uh, sending them directly to the archive is the best thing to do. I think the definition, I think defining the word, what this actually is would be extremely helpful. Um, any way that can be augmented, that it's not a, an academic thing, that it is actually, you know, um, meant to be a tool of the masses, by the masses, for the masses, for justice. Mm -hmm. I have to tell you, that's, that's how I approach it as a journalist. And so, the, uh, I think, uh, I think, the the service you guys are doing has been uh, excellent, and and I'm I'm really am uh, looking forward to uh, having a separate call where I can maybe talk about some some suggestions I'd have for the website, uh, especially as a user as a journalist too. There might, I can think of some like oh it'd be nice to be able to like find things like this. Um, Keith, do you have any uh, uh, parting words before we uh, sign things off here? Um, yeah, I, I wanted to add to what Emily brought up about the whiteness of the this podcast <laughs> um and um you know i brought up jared and stacy's paper they they're both archivists but they are both black as well we have um we have had a lot of conversations about the racial element of what we're doing our archive is called the People's Archive of Police Violence in Cleveland. There's nothing explicitly about race there. And yet, I think we all know what the police are for. <laughs> and it's for maintaining our system. Um, and our system is a white supremacist one. So we are very conscious of that. The way I often think about it is um, I'm mostly a technician, you know, like I'm doing the work. Um, and I'm in constant communication with um, both black and white and uh, all sorts of activists. Um, and we um, have worked closely with some of the <clears throat> black um, activist groups in, in the city, especially the Carl Stokes Brigade and um, Black on Black Crime. Um, and um, Black Lives Matter Cleveland actually launched right around the same time as the tribunal. So they weren't involved at all in the, in the initial stages, but um, they've endorsed our archive and advertised it on their site as well. So um, yeah, it's a tricky thing, um, but um, we're trying to we're trying to do the work that's necessary to make sure that we're held accountable um, and and not just running away with this, um, with the narrow perspective that white people necessarily have. So we're trying to keep our keep our perspective as wide as possible and and, and keep um, an authentic 
um, an authentic approach um, to the to the community and getting the stories that way. That's, I, I do think it's important to address that. So thanks for bringing that up, Emily. Well, and I certainly think um, you guys are having the right posture as far as it, even despite the color of your skin, it, it's you're listening, you're not telling. You know, as someone who's been kind of coming into the Black Lives Matter movement as a journalist, you know, and covering it, that's really been the posture I've adopted is just like, well, I'm I know I'm not experiencing this on a daily basis. So I'm here to take it in as deeply as I can and amplify the voices of, of people that are articulating it very well. So um, I can't thank you enough for the work you're doing. And I think um did we lock up for a second? Uh, so I can't thank you enough for the work that you're doing, and um, I think I'll be I'll be in touch with you guys again uh, on future stories, and and hopefully we're doing some work alongside you. So thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks, Brian. Thanks. <laughs>